Hello, I'm Nicole Bond and this is There's an Elephant in My Paddock. Today's episode really is a rather large, rather red elephant in our paddock. But first, here's a reminder. Our principal sponsor is a Rural Financial Counselling Service in North Queensland. It's a fantastic organisation. They are there to assist rural producers at risk of financial hardship. They provide free, impartial, professional support for anyone requiring support making plans for their financial future. Get in touch with a Rural Financial Counsellor today by going to our website, rfcsnq.com.au and they proudly bring to you this podcast. Michael Lyons has been roped into being our guest on There's an Elephant in My Paddock this time around. We talked coronavirus last episode and coronavirus, um, aside from disrupting everyone and changing everything, it also brought some other issues to the fore. And Michael Lyons, something popped up in coronavirus that you'd like us to look into. What, what, what came to your attention? Uh, well, I suppose this year has really brought into focus how dependent Australian agriculture is um, on China, and uh, and I guess across so many sectors, just like we're involved in the beef industry, but also grains and mining. Um, and so, yeah, I think given this massive ramp up in trade with China over the last few years, I guess my question is around: Can we operate without China? And what does need to be done to develop relationships? security into the future. Mm. So there's two-part question there. Can, can we operate without our largest trading partner? Is there enough appetite from other countries for Australian ag? And if we can't, or if there's not, uh, what can we do to get a more stable relationship? And so what, um, what caught your eye? You know, uh, um, there were a few um, issues uh, to do with China that popped up during coronavirus. What really got your um, attention? Well, what I'm seeing at the moment is this real disparity between what's happening in our domestic beef market and what's happening globally. And, um, you know, and there were some um, restrictions imposed by China. Um, at the moment, locally, it doesn't seem to be affecting the market, but I do wonder what the longer term implications are. Absolutely. And what strikes me is, I, uh, you know, as I observe agriculture and, and politics over the years, we seem to swing from one extreme to the next. On one side, it's exciting and new markets in China and how we're partnering with China. And then it swings back to the complete other side about sanctions or tr- uh, trade changes or even concern over Chinese foreign interests. Uh, it, 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 there doesn't often seem to be a happy medium. Would you agree? Yes, I do. All right. Um, so, um, Michael, is there anything particular you would like our guests to look into? Well, I think there's two things we just spoke about. And, and just, um, I suppose, is it concerning that some of our major markets are dependent on, um, you know, what sometimes seems like flimsy diplomatic relationships? And, and can this be built on into the future and create stability for you know, industries and young families and businesses that are trying to um, become, get established and, and prosper in Australian agriculture. It's a great question. Fantastic topic. I'm really looking forward to um, brainstorming with Jane about how, who, who we could find to solve this. Thanks for, for being part of the podcast. Thank you. Okay, Jane, so we've got our question and uh, I'm already feeling a bit, awkward really about going out and asking (laughs) this blatant question like why why do we feel so um i don't know constrained when we're talking about china in a way that we don't when we talk about trading with america or canada or the uk well exactly and um you know when you say awkward it it is and you know it'll be interesting to see that when we when we do start calling people um who is who is willing to put their name to or to what they have to say. Like, are people as worried as the media makes them out to be or is it just are trading uh, relationships 
a lot more uh, in control than we sort of maybe make them out to be. Mm, I've got a feeling, Jane, that this is going to be pretty tough for you. Uh, you know, we've both been journalists for a long time. You know some stories you just go, oh, it's going to be hard to get someone to do an interview on this. <laughs> I kind of feel yeah. like that's what's headed your way. No, it'll be fine. There's seasoned professionals somewhere, I'm sure. I guess, you know, what we really need to paint a picture of is, is are, are people awkward? Are they um, upset about, you know, how things are playing out with China? Uh, should the government be doing more? Can the government be doing more? Is it is it as political as we, we think it is? Should, you know, I guess there are a few other underlying questions mm. we could ask. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are... We've got some pretty big um, organisations that, you know, cover a lot of the commodities we trade. I didn't realise wool, we export so much wool to China. That's our biggest export. Mm, I guess, you know, often when you, you know, you buy clothing, it so often has uh, has China associated with. I, I guess I'm just interested whether the relationship is as precarious as we feel it is, or if it's kind of just this smoke and mirrors dance that the the people who are in the know know and understand and the rest of us it makes us feel awkward so I'm really I'm keen to know if industry thinks whether it's a flimsy relationship or not. Okay well let's go to a couple of industry bodies um, and and get that exactly how they feel and how what their experience um, with dealing with China is and then I think we really do need to go to um, an expert on who can give a bit of a Mm. big broad brush stroke look at the diplomatic relationship as much as the trading and what the correlation is and you know should should we be worried or is this just you know thumping chests about other issues that is and they're using sort of our export relationships as a as a pawn yeah and i think um you know you've mentioned wool there we definitely need to talk to grains because of yep. course there's been that barley issue and probably either meat or dairy or, or something like that. And, yeah, um, well, the beef industry, I guess the question has come from the beef industry and that's been a big growth market over the last few years. China's really increased their meat consumption because the Chinese consumer loves it. And, and well, and I do too. Let's <laughs> so kind of find yeah. what they've got to say. Let's all be honest here. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay, okay, Jane, fantastic. Well, I look forward to um, talking to our next guest. Okay, terrific. Thanks, Nicole. So, what does industry think? Is it a flimsy relationship? I mean, we know that that neither of those things happened, and yet we still ended up with these penalties. Tony Russell is the executive manager of the Grains Industry Market Access Forum. Bali is the biggest Australian commodity exported to China and has had tariffs slapped on them seemingly out of nowhere. Tony is dumbfounded, but playing it cool. It's a difficult question now because we operate from an Australian perspective. We are very much a free market oriented uh, agricultural sector. I mean, we rely very much on international markets. And the concern about being beholden to a single market or having a, if you like, a lot of your eggs in one basket, <laughs> um, it, it exposes you. There's no question about it. And then, so diversification is, uh, is the obvious solution and having alternate markets to sell. I mean, the other thing that's going to drive change and, and what I'd say is what will drive change is the actual returns for the various commodities. And grain growers, to some extent, do have some ability to switch crops. I mean, they can't do it immediately. Obviously, the crops are in the ground now for the winter crop. But next year, if the situation remains as it is, I mean, the reality is we won't be able to sell barley for the same sort of money that we were getting, you know, one, two, three years ago because China was paying a premium for it. And so... There are markets that will take barley and we've got to work very hard to develop those alternate markets. And there are, you know, there's work going on as we speak, you know, to try and open up and develop opportunities for markets. I mean, the reality is in terms of the relationship, though, there's actually nothing wrong with the relationship between the people that are selling. Uh, you know, this is the businesses that accumulate and export grade to China and those that are actually buying it, you know, the, the industry people. So at industry, industry level, in relationships are 
as sound as they've ever been. Mm, I was going to say, that's very heartening, I'm sure, for many people to hear because that is not, um, you know, that element or that aspect is is not often reported in the media. The reportage is always around, um, you know, the leaders or the government representatives. Mm. Um, In Australia, of course, if um, farmers aren't happy, they have, uh, or importers aren't happy, they have avenues to pressure or lobby their government um, to handle certain situations in certain ways to the best of their industry. Do you think your counterparts in China have that same ability? Can um, your growers have sort of confidence knowing that you've got really good relationships uh, with your Chinese counterpart that they can um, inf- influence their own government? It's certainly more limited. That's, that's what we would... Uh, perceive at least. I mean, they're not going to tell you, but look, a, a, a lot of the Chinese enterprises that we're dealing with are actually government-owned in the first place, so you're talking to one and the same. Okay. And and definitely government policy typically overrides any commercial factors in China. So it's a difficult situation for them. I mean, as much as possible, they will try. We know that. And, and make representations that there's a, a significant impact and it's actually still in China's best interest, we would argue. And I think, I think you'll, um, you'll find that the importers and the processors in China will be making that case. This is going to seriously impact China because they, they won't be able to source for the same price and, 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 and receive the reliable quality that uh, that they have been receiving from Australia for the volume that they require. It's going to be more difficult for them to source what they want, particularly in the malting sector. It doesn't apply quite the same for animal feed, but certainly in, for malting barley, that's definitely a, a factor. And, and look, they'll find a way, but the reality is it'll, it'll be tougher for them. So you have um, used barley as an example a couple of times and your organisation mm. represents all um, grains. So let's yeah. talk about barley because that is, uh, you know, that is the one that um, in the midst of sort of when Australia was feeling the pandemic, that rose its head and I think many people connected uh, what was happening to the pandemic, those who, who weren't yeah. in the know. So from what I understand, in May, China imposed a dumping margin of up to... Uh, 73.6% and a subsidy margin of up to 6.9% on all barley imported from Australia. At the time, your industry body said that it would disrupt and likely halt exports. Is that still the case? Well, no question. (laughs) Look, there's there's a little bit of barley that's trickled in. We understand there's a couple of opportunities where that barley can still go to a customs-free zone in China uh, for a product that gets processed in China and then re-exported, so without tariff. Uh, but other than that, anything that's going to go into China, it won't be, it won't be selling out of Australia with that sort of tariff level. It's too much. I mean, so why, it's a very big impediment. Why did this happen, and, and was it at all related yeah. to the pandemic? No, this is a, a, a misconception that has been. Um, going around in the media a little bit. Uh, the, the reality is China in November 2018 initiated an investigation into dumping by Australian exporters. I mean, this has followed a quite a significant ramp up in exports of barley from Australia. Well, it was, I guess it was, uh, it was a market opportunity and, and Chinese importers were looking for barley and uh, there was, a big growth in opportunity, and they bought it. So, but it happened that a lot of Australian barley was going to China in 2016, 2017, 2018, and in 2000, and sorry, in November 2018, China initiated this dumping investigation, and then shortly after, uh, a subsidies or a countervailing duties investigation uh, was initiated about a month later. So that's been going for nearly 18 months. Um, now, what what drove China to initiate those investigations is still not entirely clear. You can speculate that it could have been due to other uh, relationship at the at the political level. Fact, it could have been factors at that 
in that space, but uh, I mean, you can only speculate. Uh, there's certainly no grounds, or as far as we're concerned, there's still no basis to the findings that the, that the investigating authority, being the Ministry of Commerce in China, came up with in in May, suggesting that dumping took place and uh, and that and that our farmers are subsidised. I mean, we know that that neither of those things happened, and yet we still ended up with these penalties. It just so happened that the, that, that that investigation had to be concluded by the 19th of May, and it, and it was only two or three weeks after uh, these connections were made with the uh, corona, the source of the coronavirus, and our, you know suggestions about undertaking investigations into the source of the coronavirus. It was just unfortunate timing as far as that's concerned. Mm. But nevertheless, it's been caught up in this whole you know, political argument that's been going on in the last three months. Mm. Now, given, uh, you know, you mentioned that you can only really specu- speculate as to mo- the motivations behind it. Do you feel that if political and diplomatic relations uh, between Australia and China were better, uh, do you think that you would have seen those tariffs? That's difficult to say, but I, I mean, the argument that China's put is that our own barley industry, which I might say is quite insignificant in terms of their overall grain production. And I'll point out that China consumes something like 600 plus million tonnes of grain a year. They import over 100 million tonnes and most of that soybeans, but they also import, well, they have been importing, you know, four to five million tonnes of barley and probably a similar quantity of wheat and corn and sorghum, other grains, but probably that might all add up to maybe 130 million tonnes. So they consume in excess of 600 million tonnes. So, and, and barley, in terms of uh, the barley industry in China, they supposedly used to produce something in the order of 4 million tonnes about a decade or more ago, but it sort of subsided uh, 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 over the last decade. And, and more recently, the stats would indicate that they've been producing uh, somewhere between one and a half and two million tonnes of barley. It's quite dispersed around the place where it's grown and not grown anywhere particularly close to where it's needed. Um, so, you know, their argument is uh, oh, their, their industry's been disadvantaged because Australian barley's been dumped in their market. Well, the fact of the matter is our barley was being sold at the world market price. Their own statistics and their own findings show that their own cost of production of barley in China is higher than, way higher than the global price. Uh, the cost of production in Australia is about a third of what their cost of production is. So there was no way known their industry is ever going to be competitive in the first place. The case that they put up was very, very flawed in its analysis and really uh, shouldn't have been shouldn't have ended up with the result that we've ended with so mm-hmm. have discussions start are you aware of any discussions or appeals made to the government to consider taking up this issue oh look we've been talking with the government all along uh, you know from the outset of the dumping and CVD investigations so and what's their response? So, uh, what's their response to, to to the industry like? Are they are they uh, supporting of what you're saying? Or do you think they are, are realise taking you know your distress, the industry's distress seriously? Oh, absolutely! You know they've been working very closely with us and helping us to try and um, resolve the matter you know, right from the outset. So I'm I'm going right back you know, more than eighteen months now when we started this exercise. Uh, and they've been very helpful, and they're continuing on that path. No, I couldn't couldn't be critical of the government in that respect. Mm, yep, excellent. So we we talked before. You mentioned how uh, how how strongly um, you know you put in submissions, very strong submissions, um, opposing you know the dumping um, allegation from China, and the, and that that was dismissed. I mean. Um, I'm want to. I'm, I'm interested to know. You know, when a process 
is there and it fails us and we, we feel that it's unfair, um, what sort of confidence does that give you in the, in the system? I mean, has, has that changed or, or have you guys always known that the system um, when dealing with China uh, is less reliable? I mean, is that, is that fair to say? Oh, look, no, it, it, it wouldn't be. Um, look, we've followed the process right from the outset and and it, it's a process that was run by the Chinese Ministry of Commerce um, and so we had to follow their procedures and so on and we followed it to the letter, really. I mean, it, it, it wasn't easy to, to uh, provide all the information in the form that they wanted it, but we did as best we could. Uh, and, of course, it was extremely disappointing to get the outcome because we know that there wasn't dumping and we know that Australian farmers aren't subsidised. Uh, the findings were, frankly, the rubbish. Yes, it makes you disappointed that the process didn't work. Um, but, look, in terms of uh, historical precedence, this is the first time Australia's taken anti-dumping um allegations and set up an investigation against Australia. Uh, this, so we didn't have any sort of precedence to say, oh, well, we shouldn't follow this. We, we can't believe, you know, what the outcome's going to be and anything like that because this is the first time that China's actually taken this action against Australian uh, agriculture at least. So, and I'm pretty sure against any enterprise in Australia. Tony Russell went on to say the barley industry is hopeful of returning to China, but their biggest challenge will be finding a market for the crops in the ground now. China still has a quota to fill and, as Tony says, there's not a lot of other countries growing it to the quality or scale of Australia. He also sees a lot of opportunity to value-add to Australia's cattle exports. Meat exports are increasing and rely on feedlotting to ready them for market. Who's not to say they could enjoy a barley-rich diet? So I'm joined by Patrick Hutchinson. He's with the Australian Meat Industry Council, which is basically the only body to represent the meat industry post Farm gate. Um, thanks for joining us. Mr. Hutchinson, China is clearly our biggest export customer with about 25% uh, of our meat going there. But how significant are we to them? Yes, uh, Nicole, we, we are actually very significant to them. Uh, and a lot of people that I deal with in China are very clear to me saying that we, uh, we need Australia. We need Australian products. We need Australian service. And, and basically, we need Australian values. And so they've been very clear to us over a very long period of time in suggesting that our product is far and away of extreme value to them in market, so much so that um, uh, we are the highest value exporter of red meat in the world. We might only be the second largest for sheep meat, uh, for lamb, sorry, um, uh, and the fourth largest for beef but we're the highest value. So what sort of challenges, you know, if we are competing against uh, Brazil, Argentina, the US or, or anyone else really in exporting to China, what kind of challenges does this present g given that we're not the most important exporter? Well, yeah, I wouldn't say we're not their most important exporter. I'd probably, I, I would probably look more on it. We, we're in a strained relationship at the moment and uh, that's outside of trade. So when I'm, certainly speaking publicly or if I'm speaking to uh, ministers of the Crown or I'm speaking to um, anyone in the street on issues such as this in relation to China, my, my position is very clear and that is that in anything that occurs in a geopolitical sense with China, obviously we're not foreign policy experts, but we are trade experts and we want to ensure that trade is not collateral damage through, this, through that process. How reliant are we on, on China purchasing our meat? Yeah, look, and, I, and, and a great question because I think that this is a bit of a misnomer uh, that we're hearing, it's certainly from the backbench China hawks that we hear from in regards to China. Um, and there's even uh, coming up next week, um, Joint Standing Committee on Trade Diversification talking about the same thing and leading questions from the chairman of that, um, uh, leading cha uh, the chairman of that standing committee 
around issues in relation to our, all our eggs in one basket with China and, and uh, you know, we shouldn't be going to China. We should remember 15 years ago, the beef, we only sent 1,000 tonnes. 10 years ago, we only sent 5,000 tonnes. Five years ago, we got to about 120,000 tonnes. Last year, it was 300,000 tonnes. Now, that should resonate with people that China is willing to pay because our beef herd, as an example, is a herd that revolves around between 24.5 to 27 million year on year over the past 30 years. It's actually at its lowest level in the last 30 years. Our sheep population is down at the lowest level. It's been in almost 100 years. Yet we've got to remember who we are. We are the largest trade-exposed manufacturer in this nation. We are just inverse manufacturers. What does that we mean? take the whole. What does that mean? We take when the you, whole. When you say and we sell parts. You say, yeah, when you say, now I've forgotten the term you used. What did you say? Uh, trade exposed manufacturer. Yeah. So what does trade yeah. exposed mean? Means that any issue in relation to uh, changes in trade policy or changes in trade trading structure around relationships, whatever else, we're the biggest exposed or we're the biggest in manufacturing industry. Uh, that has the highest exposure to that. So, and so when when we explain that, what we've got to remember is it's an inverse manufacturing. We take the whole and then we create parts and we sell the parts. Now, people's mind really gets blown with that because they think manufacturing is taking all these little parts and creating a widget or creating uh, a car or creating a fridge or creating something like that, not taking the fridge and disassembling it and then selling all the parts off. That's what red meat processing is. And so therefore, what we do is is that we don't have one market for a whole. We have 100 markets for 100 parts. Now, essentially what's occurred at this time has been that China has decided that in order for it to fulfill the requirements in its domestic uh, consumption rates, it will pay above the odds for all parts. So we're talking about full sets, so when I say full sets, we're talking about uh, in breaking down a carcass and talking about the main cuts from the carcass, but we're also talking about things like offal uh, and a range of different products that we create from that offal. And they can be from goat's testicles right through to Wagyu strip loins. So Patrick, and everything else in between. It's a very interesting way that you describe um, the sector and I've never heard it described like that. I just wonder then if it's, um, in some terms it strikes me that perhaps it's easier trading with China because they are happy to buy the full gamut of products um, at a good price um, on, on that hand and then potentially more difficult on the, on the political side of things. Does that come into any? Does that come into any of it? That it's Ad, absolutely, absolutely, Nicole. You've, you've, you've hit it on the head, and that is that it, it is becoming simpler in that sort of terminology, and that is why that people then look at it as, oh well, you're too reliant. It's so China has appeared out of nowhere, and all of a sudden we send everything to them. This has been a market that has grown over many, many years. And Patrick went on to talk about the challenges of building the Chinese market up to the current level, only to have it suddenly scrutinised when the heat is turned up politically. We've got to get people out of a, a rhetoric central system of China equals bad because the media tells me so. He says despite COVID restrictions, the markets with Japan, America, the Middle East and Taiwan are as strong as ever. The Chinese-Australian meat Industries signed an MOU last year in an attempt to stabilise the relationship outside the political sphere. Uh, because they represent the importers and we represent the exporters, how do we look to start to share more knowledge between each other? And in sharing that knowledge, what is that then going to lend us to? Research and development, marketing strategies, supply chain management, hold logistics is another one over there. We need to be spending more chilled product there. But even more important than all of those together is the fact that in 2017, Premier Lee Kirchin and then Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull signed a joint statement. And part of that joint statement was around biosecurity, which included the elevation of 15 establishments so that they can also then be registered for China, that all plants registered for China can sell chilled products, because at the moment only 11 can. 
and that all plants registered for China and Australia can send tripe, which is obvious, is an awful product, as we know, a white awful product that we call it, as we know, but a massive delicacy in China that we can't get access to at the moment. So that's three key levels where we're going to the importing group and saying, we need your help in making sure that this remains on the front of, the front of mind for people. This question has come up, obviously because of the timing and what's been going on around the world with the pandemic and the trade issues Australia have been having uh, with China. So I just I just want to go back to the specific um, instance that has many beef producers kind of worried. Um, when China uh, came into the spotlight uh, earlier this year after they cut or they suspended our four major processes access. Can you put that into context? Uh, what was that about? Why was their access suspended? Did we do something wrong? Or, uh, or is this uh, political leverage being used? Look, first and foremost, they have a tolerance that they set for labelling requirements on, on product. And that's very, that's very clear. China, through the General Administration of, of Customs, they, uh, with GACC, they say that they put out reports. Now, these reports are across a whole range of different structures, be they, uh, you know, this is rotten meat, this is broken cartons, this is labelling, this is uh, misalignment on certificates, this is, there's been a number of times where it's been reported publicly uh, on their websites that these facilities, you know, there's been minor issues in regards to labelling and they have just made a decision to say, okay, you're going to be suspended until we're confident that the systems that you have in place will reduce or eliminate this issue. And those, um, those four plants have uh, provided those uh, corrective action programs to our government, and our government's provided those to China. So we have to sit and wait till, uh, yeah, until we, we hear back from them. So should Australian producers then be turning their worry to that the local processors can't follow the rules or rather no, than I, look, being concerned I, I about think China? Look, I think when you look at the amount of when you look at the number that is uh, being discussed here, and, and you know that, that it is a handful. You know, we send sixty five million cartons of of product to China every year. I think we're talking about twenty cartons. You know, you can't even put a you know just, you, you don't have enough zeros in front of it in regard to a percentage point. But that doesn't. So, but that doesn't mean that uh, uh, necessarily China says, well, you know. I, we're not confident, and that's the and and we've got to remember this is not an attack per se on the Australian beef industry in the same way that China has put an eighty percent tariff on all Australian barley plants uh, and all Australian barley exports. And it should be noted that one of the individual companies obviously is uh, is fully owned, uh, has full ownership uh, from a Chinese company. From the outside, we it appears to us that sometimes these Chinese trade decision, decisions can be quite reactive and um, come unexpectedly. Are, are you guys concerned about that at all from the meat perspective? Yeah, well, we're always concerned in regards to anything that does with the trading, um, uh, it, with, with, with rules-based trading globally. So as I said, um, when it comes to the relationship, and what we work through, um, it's very clear that we, we've made a very clear statement uh, that uh, we must ensure that in any issues around the geopolitical landscape, whether it be um, uh, how China operates within the Pacific, South China Sea, Xinjiang province and, and Uyghurs, uh, Hong Kong, anything else like that, whatever decisions that we're making from a ge geopolitical situation, that we've always taken into consideration the knock-on effects that are, can occur, especially within trade. So as I said, the trade does not become collateral damage. Now, we can't just say, well, you look after trade nothing else because as a nation we have values and those values are what sets us apart from the rest of the world as Australians. However, we've also got to be making sure that also what sets us apart, apart from the rest of the world as Australians is our reliability in the provision of food to the globe. So that balance, and I think this is where often politicians do make their money, is that when you look at that balance, you effectively have to make some pretty strong decisions at that time. Now, what we as an industry get frustrated with 
is when people who are not around that decision table, normally around a backbench level, start to then have their own opinions publicly enunciated or create groups like the Wolverines or uh, other associated activities which just encourage uh, more animosity, encourage more adverse media reaction to what otherwise is a normal relationship and then puts us in a position where we're having to either stand up for our trading partner or stand up for our trade and our trading partner and then uh, be viewed as being pro-China or not stand up for our trade or our trading partner and actually then be viewed as being anti-China and not interested in the trade relationships. Patrick, if you ran into our questioner at a barbecue across from, uh, you know, a couple of lovely eye fillets, um, medium rare, and if Michael Lyons said to you, um, can we operate without China and what needs to be done to get the relationship security, what would be your brief response? Briefly, I'd say at this present time, no. I don't think that we can operate without China based on the size of the market. Um, do, can we operate on a with China providing them with less product? I don't think we need to be thinking in that way because I think China actually wants our product. So we can't move away from the fact that just because we're looking in the media at the moment and certain media outlets decide to tell us what we should and shouldn't think about China doesn't mean that China, in, over with a billion people, does not want our product. What we need to be doing in the relationship to continue to be able to provide that product is recognise the volatility in the market, understand about our ability to be able to spread our risk in other markets, but not to lose sight of the fact that it's not simply just let's diversify to other markets because we send to 100 countries around the world. That's the way in which we trade and that's how we do it. That's how we manage to ensure that we can capture value and capture margin in order to maintain price. And we will continue to do that forever and a day, which we're the world leaders on and have been for probably the last 100 years. So we've heard from two of Australia's biggest commodities from China, and they don't appear to be too worried. We know Chinese consumers love Australian product. They trust us. It's good quality. However, being a communist nation, the consumers don't have the influence or power they have here. Most countries use trade to manipulate. China is not the only one. But are we right to be concerned particularly with their growth into the Pacific region? One expert says we need to brace ourselves. I think Australia has to be more assertive and not be so kowtowed by China when it comes to being to wanting to criticise political decisions that China makes. This is Dr Matt Killingsworth, Head of Politics and International Relations at the University of Tasmania. It's a relationship that covers off on trade. It's a relationship that explores aspects of security and defence, but it also attempts to, to make alignments with similar needs and desires that both countries have identified. So... It's rather than just covering just one of those aspects. So it's more than a trade agreement. It's more than cooperation on notions of security and defence. And again, it's it's, it's diplomatic speak for uh, the most comprehensive um, or the most wholesale type of relationship that you might want to have with another country. Okay. If DFAT uh, gave a description of Australia and China's trading relationship, do you think uh, how would how do you think they would describe that? Mutually dependent, um, I think, would be a, a, a good way of describing it. And so, the idea that it's it's good for both countries to have a trade relationship. So, the idea that Australia there's a, a desire for high quality, especially agricultural produce, but also things such as iron ore, coal, et cetera, to drive um, what was the emerging Chinese economy. And in turn, Australia has access to Chinese products um, that, are, that are beneficial to Australia. So I, I think that would be the way in which, in fact, I think that would be the way perhaps prior to the, to the most recent sort of um, problems with regards to the relationship. 
I think that's how both countries would have described it, that, it, that it's mutually beneficial. I detect a, a view that um, we're dependent on them, but they have more power in the relationship than us. Do you think that's um, an incorrect uh, view? No, I don't. If you if you if you can indulge me for a little second, there's a there's a long history to this. So, at, at, at the end of the 1980s and the beginning of the 1990s, China started modernising its economy and started moving from essentially a, a, a centrally controlled um, command economy to introducing forms of market. And there was great enthusiasm, especially from the West, um, of which Australia is a, is a member of, who saw an opportunity for a to engage um, economically with China. And, and, and so the idea of China as an emerging middle class, and so this massive population that was about to have disposable income. And the idea that that appealed to, to Western um, industrial economies was twofold, that we have specialised products, high-end products, that we can start selling. And so there's an emerging, a new market for Australian producers with this emerging middle class in China. And in turn, we can take advantage of... Um, lower labour costs, et cetera, et cetera, that China has to lower some of our, to, to mean that we don't have to produce certain things anymore. And so there's this idea that this was win-win for, for, for Western economies. What they failed to appreciate was that China is and remains politically authoritarian. It, it's, it's ruled by the Chinese Communist Party. And the Western countries who are engaging with China are of the belief that what we can do is we can encourage them to become more liberal in their politics by engaging in their economy. And China, in lots of ways, has very cleverly said, well, no, we're going to sell you our stuff, we're going to buy your stuff, but we're going to continue to be to have the Chinese Communist Party um, run our, control us, control us politically. And so your right to identify the dependency that a, that countries, and Australia especially, sort of saw this as a real opportunity and um, to, in lots of ways, put all their eggs in one basket. And that decision, as I think you identified, is coming back to bite them on the bum a little bit. As Australia starts getting concerned about some of the political decisions that China is making, China in turn is saying, well, we'll use the, this opportunity to ensure that um, we will start putting tariffs, for example, on certain agricultural products. And we reserve the right to do that um, if you continue to criticise our political decision-making. And so there's, there's a long history, I think, to what we're seeing emerging at the moment that was, I think, a naivety from the West that they could encourage China to behave more like them politically. You mentioned a term there, um, all our eggs in one basket, and it's a great term because Australia is the most China-reliant economy in the developed world, as far as I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, but about a third of our exports are heading there. Uh, do we have to be so reliant? Is it a case of all our eggs in one basket or not actively seeking other markets? Because both of the industry people I have spoken to on this matter both say that no, their industries do have a wider um, breadth of um, potential trading partners, but China is just the best fit at the moment. And, it, and, and this, I think, was because of the, the pure attractiveness of China. When we start thinking about just the pure raw numbers of China, with respect to China, and in particularly with just the, 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 when we think about the population and how that can sort of correlate with ideas of consumers, that's very, very attractive. And so government policy obviously saw this as a real opportunity for Australian exports, but as, as, as the people of you spoken to rightly identify, there are other markets. And so I, I think the problem with how Australia behaves is in lots of, and I'll go back to that term, there was a, there was a certain naivety of believing that China was a market in which Australia could just keep piling their produce into um, and not think at any stage that there would be a problem with this. And so I, I think there I think there is an issue with a lack of diversification in some respects with, with the way that 
um, Australia has sort of looked at China as a one-stop shop. Given that you identified before, you know, this is not just a simple trade uh, issue when it comes to China. It is also political, that the relationship is comprehensive and strategic. So there's many layers in this. Um what has happened with Australia's relationship with China since sort of 2018 or Prime Minister Morrison? Has there been a change? What's going on? I think the change has come not necessarily since 2018. I think the change has come more recently and I think it's around um, the COVID-19 pandemic and I think it's also probably somewhat to do with China's activities, for example, in the South China Sea, um, China's act, China's um, somewhat belligerent policy towards Hong Kong, and so under the the premiership of of President Xi, there has been a new emphasis on expanding China's sphere of influence, and that crosses into the Pacific and into Australia's sphere of influence. Now, there's also been a, 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 a sort of a, a, a tensions and, 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 and these oscillate with the United States and China. Now, obviously, um, the United States is a key ally of Australia. And so we're often led by the way that the United States behaves with respect to its foreign policy. And so I think since President Trump in particular has stepped up his attacks on China, especially since um, the, the, the the pandemic, um, the the relationship in turn, and, and Australia again, for example, Australia took the lead at the beginning of this year in calling for um, a WHO inquiry into China's what they described as complicity with COVID nineteen, and again they did that I think at the behest of the United States, whether that was tacit or explicit, and China called them out on that, and and again this was this was when we had. Um, the the increase in barley tariffs, for example. And so, again, the, the relationship, I think, has changed as a result of China's activities and, in turn, Australia being guided somewhat by the United States, but also the realisation that China is not the benign superpower in the region that it was once thought of, that it has um, plans as an expansionist power. So again, we come back to that history of where there was a, a belief that in trading and opening up markets to, to China, there was a belief that that would in turn lead to increased democratization, et cetera, et cetera. That hasn't happened. And so what we're seeing at the moment, the, the, the tensions that you've alluded to and some of the fears that you've spoken about are a result of, uh, I think, misplaced optimism um, in, the, in the 1990s. Given what you've just said then, do you think that the relationship is going to continue to be strained? Do you think things will get better before they get worse? I mean, what do you think is going to happen if it's all kind of stemming from China's increased interest in the Pacific, which until recently, you know, sort of Australia um, had a strong, seemed like the big brother in, um, with the support of the US as well, mm. which was important too, yeah. Yeah, and so, I mean, it's a bit of crystal ball gazing, but do you expect relationships to become more tense before a resolution or, or what can you foresee happening? I, I should qualify here that my crystal ball gazing is notoriously wrong. Um, so <laughs> whatever I say here um, will be sort of um, informed by, by, by what's happening at the moment. So I think the first thing that we've got to, got to sort of talk about is a, a post-COVID-19 environment and what that will look like. And what if, if there is, for example, um, a resurgent United States and the United States starts taking a more proactive interest in what's going on at the moment. So um, at the moment, the, 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 the President of the United States, Donald Trump, is is not really interested in having a proactive foreign policy. In fact, he's quite isolationist. So I think what happens in the November elections in the United States will be important. I think depending on what sort of conclusion is drawn about um, whether China could have done more to prevent the spread of COVID-19 might also affect the relationship 
But I think you're right in pointing out that the relationship has reached a really important juncture. And I think, and, and, I, and from the most recent statements that have come out from the Australian government, and you might have seen recently the, um, the security and defence um, announcement that was talking about a, a big spend that was essentially aimed at China. Um, it was coded, but it wasn't coded very well. Um, about about what this new policy policy was aimed at. So I think we've reached a really important juncture where there's a realisation that Australia can't continue to have the same trading relationship with China without starting to talk about some of the political issues that we've identified so far. And then in turn, it depends sort of on how much more belligerent China wants to be. Because at the moment, there hasn't been that much pushback much of sort of what we see at the moment is quite acquiescent to what China wants. And there's lots of talk and, and nibbling around the edges, but not a lot has happened. So I, I think we've reached a really important juncture um, that's informed by multiple things that are happening at the moment. Mm. One could form a view that China uh, seems to use agricultural trade as a, a pawn or a lever to um, put pressure on diplomatic matters or to um, gain ground in other areas. Is that fair or is that um, overcooking it? No, I don't think that's unfair at all. And in fact, and again, it comes back from this position that China has found itself in um, with, again, getting back to this notion that, and, and, and I don't mean to simplify this too much, but China has a lot of cheap things that, that, that a lot of Western countries want to buy, and it means they don't have to produce anymore. But in turn, there are, uh, again, and we get back to this sort of emerging middle class in China, uh, and this desire for um, industrialized countries, market economies, to sell them that. So in, in lots of ways, China is, uh, has an advantage um, in, 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 as you've said, of, of using trade as an important um, uh, sort of pawn, as, as you suggested, in diplomacy matters. Whether it's fair or not uh, is not really... I mean, it's been going on forever, um, and it's something that China is taking advantage of, which other countries take advantage of when they can well, as well. Was, in other countries like, uh, you know, the European Union, for example, you mentioned um, consumers have a certain amount of uh, power or influence uh, over their government. Um, when diplomacy matters become intertwined with commodity, commodity trading, um, is it more complex in a country like China, uh, particularly when I'm hearing from the other interviewees that the relationship between, you know, their, their, their export um, you know, the people who are exporting and the people who are importing in China have quite good relationships and if the, um, you know, if the consumers want the Australian product, are, uh, are, the, are those people likely to have influence on their government in, in the same way that potentially a, a European Union population could? So this is the this is also sort of adds into the complexity of China as a non-democratic political society. So the authoritarianism in China means that there's not the same degree of um, influence that the population can have on decision making. Nonetheless, though, it's not entirely absent. Now, I, I, I can't speak with any authority on the particular issues that we're talking about, but I think that often it's somewhere in between. So. It's not as impossible as some suggest in um, a country that's ruled by the Chinese Communist Party, but it's also certainly use, also the population certainly can't have the impact that they might be able to have in a democracy, for example. And so, again, this is somewhere in between, but it, it's also, it, it also comes back to one of the points that we were talking about earlier in that it highlights the risk and, and, and again, this naivety that Australia had in thinking that um, trade and the opening up of markets would in turn lead to an opening up of the political um, system in China, and that just hasn't come, hasn't come. So I think what we're seeing at the moment is the result of that naivety and misplaced optimism. So almost like it's like a cultural um, ignorance on Australia's part. 
Well, I, I think there was, I actually think there was a cultural hubris on Australia's part. I, I think there was a, and again, if you'll sort of forgive me a little bit, this idea at the end of the Cold War that um, democracy and capitalism had beaten communism, the idea that it could do it again in China, appears to have been totally misplaced. Um, and, and again, so that, that thinking is coming back to, 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 to bite Australia on the bum. One thing I had intended to ask all of our guests, do you feel that you can talk freely as, as an academic um, about uh, your, your true beliefs and understandings about the relationship between Australia and China? I'm, I'm keen to know, why are people reluctant to talk about problems with the relationship so I think again, this is a great question, and there's multiple aspects to this. So the first answer to your question is yes, I do feel a relative freedom, but I also appreciate that I need to be somewhat guarded as well. So, for example, um, my institution would probably pull me into line if they thought that what I had said was detrimental to attracting international students and Chinese students to the University of Tasmania. So there are, there are those limits. The, the sensitivity of the issue relates to what we discussed at the start of our conversation. The sensitivity relates to the fact that the Australian economy has in, in, in a variety of aspects. So we've spoken about trade, but we've also spoken about international students. The Australian economy has become so reliant on China in a variety of ways that China is very clever and very quick to call out um, what they regard as to be slurs against China and then use trade or, and they've used foreign students in the, in the past as well, as a sort of a stick to say, look, if you, if you don't apologise or if you continue to make such statements about China, then we will reserve the right to um, make decisions that will be detrimental to that economic relationship. And so the, 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 tension rely, sorry, the tension is due, as we've discussed a little bit already, the tension is due primarily to, to the beginnings of the relationship um, and, and the idea of that this is, that China represents and, and, and and, and China is sort of a, a, a metaphor for lots of things. But China represents an opportunity for Australia. And when the realisation came that that opportunity also came with some form of political baggage, we found ourselves in a very awkward position in, in being able to talk about this and, and to choose our language carefully. Um, and so, again... Sort of getting back to your original question, yes, I have relative freedom, but I also understand the situation means that I, I, I do have to choose my words carefully in the way that I talk about China. And that's not just for Chinese um, response, but there's also Australian interests as well that are very wary of criticism of China. I, I'm, I'm wondering, and I, uh, given... Of course, taking into account that your background is in politics and international relations rather than specifically trade. But do you have a view on whether we should cut our losses with China, given that, you know, I think you've used the term a few times, uh, well, you have used the term a few times in our discussion that, you know, we had this naivety going into the relationship. We thought that trade could, could change the way that they bring them around to our way of seeing the world. It hasn't happened that way. Do you think Australia should cut its losses and and stop trading uh, with China and instead focus on uh, other more like-minded um, nations in the world? No. I, I, I think there's, there's too much at stake and there's been too much built up to, to cut off trade entirely. There are aspects of it that are beneficial. But I think Australia has to be more assertive and not be so kowtowed by China when it comes to being to wanting to criticise political decisions that China makes. And, and, and so I think there has to be a realisation that the trade that Australia has with China is beneficial for China as well. China will not want to cease trade 
Um, it's sort of the idea of cutting off its nose to spite itself. There are benefits for, for China as well. So I think Australia has got to be more confident in finding where that middle ground is of being able to maintain a healthy trading relationship while also reserving the right um, to, to raise concerns with respects to, to politics um, with China. And, and at the moment, I, I think, again, Australia, and I think this has turned around perhaps this year, but prior to this, I think Australia ran scared when it came to, 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 to rational and fair criticism of China's behaviour. And so I, 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 there's no question of um, us cutting and running. That won't happen. But I, I think this new assertiveness from the Morrison government um, is to be applauded. Um, and, and sort of that idea that there, Australia has interests at stake here as well. And I think it's important that they're voiced um, within this relationship too. You mentioned that in a term that that you know we need to we need to be more mindful that uh, the the trading relationship works both ways and that um, you know China needs our product or wants our product as much as we want to sell it to them. In the case of the barley, though, the the grains person that uh, we interviewed for this program mentioned that you know the reason given for imposing the tariffs was that um, that it was going to impact the local barley production and this um, grains expert um, said that you know there is no way that China can can grow the amount of barley that Australia is exporting to it so in that instance it does seem that they're cutting their nose off despite their face do you think that this is just another bit of muscle flexing or do you 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 know that you would expect to play to just play out and things back, return back, or or um, do they feel no? Indeed, so, so, the upper hand. No, so this is the saber rattling. Yes. So what I think would so what I think would happen here is we have the grand statement from China, the the, the very loud um, statement that's important for to save national face. The realization, knowing full well before the decision was made, that as your grain expert said, they they can't replicate that from domestic market. And then very quietly, using back channels, um, there will be a decision made and not publicised about just gradually reducing that tariff just incrementally until it's back to a point where it was at the beginning. And China hasn't lost face because there's no grand announcement. Um, They continue to provide the barley that's required for their population. And everyone's sort of happier in the end. So, so, I, I, so do you think that um, agri- this, this might be getting to the nub of the, the issue, I guess, and it's not quite what the question was, but I'm wondering, do you think the agricultural community that exports needs to just better understand this idea of saving face and understand that uh, the Chinese Communist Party needs to have this strong face, needs to be seen as influential, um, but also understands that um, that the trading partnership is mutual. Do you think we don't get the idea of saving face? Look, I don't want to sort of be demeaning, but I, I think, and we, I mean, I, the, the title of the podcast is the, the elephant in the paddock. The elephant in the room is that we don't talk about China as a totalitarian regime. It's not raised. And and the, the, the beginning point, exactly, of understanding it as such, and then in turn realising what that means, especially for President Xi, who, uh, sorry, President Xi, who, who almost has sort of this, um, this leadership charisma and his, his legitimacy comes from... Um, the, the, the type of decisions that are made, the idea of saving face, while not super important, it is an integral part of the way that the Chinese Communist Party operates. And so, again, w- without sort of saying um, Australians don't understand, um, I, I think a, a sort of an appreciation of that would be important and also in lots of ways an appreciation that diplomacy sort of runs on multiple tracks at multiple times that there's the very public announcements and then there's the working behind the scenes that are not always so public. I think we've covered a lot of ground. Is there anything else that um, that we haven't covered that you liked, that you think is important in this discussion? 
just one thing that I, I, I sort of I sometimes think too that producers might be pawns in this relationship, um, and that's unfortunate. Um, and, and again, perhaps more information um, and, and sort of some some placating at some stage, maybe by the Australian government again, just quietly sort of talking to producers about this is not the end of the game. This is this is how China will behave in certain, certain circumstances. But we're working hard to ensure that we still look after um, Australian producers. This conversation has focused on the question we're trying to answer about Australia-Chinese trading relations. But context is everything. So we spoke to Dr Matt about a couple of other relevant agricultural issues, if you would indulge us. Whenever Chinese investors whip out the checkbook to buy Australian land, we hear about it. I rarely hear about when Swedish or English companies purchase Aussie soil. But I have seen more than a couple of exposés when the new owner is Chinese. Why? Is there a real reason for concern, cheap political ruse, or just plain racism? Dr Matt went on to say how Australia undervalues the contribution of Chinese students to higher education and how our educational institutions will need to come up with a new economic model ex-coronavirus in order to survive. Again, all the eggs in one basket a common turn of phrase in this episode. And if I haven't said it already, this podcast is produced by the fabulous Jane Cudahy. I'm Nicole Bond, and this podcast is brought to you by the Rural Financial Counselling Service, North Queensland. If you haven't already and you're enjoying our series, please give us a review on wherever you get your podcasts. Every little bit helps. Tell your friends as well and join us on social media. Hi, my name is Nick Birchley and I'm a Rural Financial Counselor with Rural Financial Counselling Service North Queensland. There are many reasons why you can benefit from working with a Rural Financial Counselor and I would like to give you just one. Rural Financial Counselors assist primary producers to improve their business skills and resilience. Understanding your financial statements is more than complying with the reporting obligations of being in business. Good financial knowledge allows you to understand your cost structure, see how well you are performing against your goals, read trends early, identify any negative trends that may arise, make significant business decisions based on good quality data. It also allows you to talk to your financier on an equal level. When you meet with a banker, they will consciously or subconsciously be evaluating your business capacity by your knowledge of all facets of your business and the way you address them. When you are looking at a new finance proposal or reviewing your existing lending facilities, your banker has probably already looked at your financials and formulated opinions and questions for you. Your knowledge of the financial side of your business will help you talk about your business with your banker in a far more positive way. Your banker will feel more confident about lending to you because they know you are on top of your business. Contact your local rural financial counsellor to assist you be better in your business.